Well, all right. Um, we are going to look at the topic of the Trinity today. If you guys have a Bible, open them up to John chapter 13, and uh, we'll scan this. This series is a topical series. Is We are looking at topics in particular. Keep your hands up if you need a Bible here um, in the chapel and in the conference center. Um, someone will get one in your hands. But this series is topical. Or if you study theology at all, there's this phrase called systematic theology. And what that means is there are people going into the Bible going, what does the Bible teach about God? What does it teach about revelation? What does it teach about creation? What does it teach about humanity? That's systematizing a teaching that is in the Bible, but to help us help us comprehend it in a category. Today, we are really looking at the topic of God but in this idea of Trinity in his triune nature. So there's an obvious question that comes out when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's who cares? So throughout the history of the church, this topic of the triune God and all that goes into it, the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, has created a tremendous amount of controversy, even divisions in the churches, but it's so significant that it separates Christianity from all the other religions of the world and Christianity from all the other cults who would profess the name Christianity but in fact deny this doctrine. So when we talk about who cares, we need the answer of why it's important. So it's so important that councils throughout the history of the church met to determine what does the Bible teach about God. They determined what it is and they cast others out as false teachers who didn't affirm this. Not any less than that, in fact, in fact even more significant, it matters because we're dealing with the question of who is God. And it's really important for all of us sitting in here to understand that God's behind everything. Everything. The Bible says that he's the maker of all things. The Bible says that he's the sustainer. He upholds all things. And that he's the renewer of all things. And in fact, the Bible says that we were made by and for him. So this understanding of who God is has all types of significance. It's the most significant question there is, and we don't want to get this wrong. Jesus prays himself in John 17 to the Father, and he says, this is eternal life, that they know the one only true God, that they know the one and true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. So there is a true God, and there are false gods. And many of the false gods are out there. In fact, you could say all of them revolve around some denial of this teaching, this doctrine that we're going to deal with today. So false ideas of God lead you into the wrong place. It's, it's somewhat like a wrong phone number. You call a wrong phone number and somebody says, um, sorry, John doesn't live here. Right? And they hand the phone off. So imagine this. There's a group of guys at an event they're checking out all the girls, looking at them. One of the guys looks over, catches the eye of a beautiful girl, and he is infatuated immediately with her. He wants to get to know her. He wants, so he starts talking to all his buddies. Guys, I have got to figure out and find out how to get with this girl, get to know her. She needs to be mine. 
So the guys are like, well, there's only one way you're going to do that is if you actually walk up to her and try to talk to her. So he moseys on over, gets near a couple of the girls, finds his way right by her. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? You know, what's going on? Small talk. And she's like, you know what? I got to go. And he's like, but you can't go. I really want to get to know you. And she says, okay, I'll give you my number. He goes, great. And she's like, do you want to write it down on anything? No, 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 no. Okay, so you're just going to remember it? Eh, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's your number, right? Like, who cares? She's like, okay, here's the deal. My number is 555-1241. Yeah, 555-1241. So they leave. He walks back. Guys, she gave me her number. Well, what's her number? And he's like, hmm. She said, I think, 555-4465. I don't know. It doesn't matter. And all his buddies are like, it doesn't matter? What are you talking about? It doesn't matter. Like, it totally matters. You've never seen this girl before. You may never see her again. If you don't get the number right, you don't get her. What's the number? Ah, who cares? Well, obviously you don't because you're not going to get access to her with the wrong number. False views about God is you may think, I'm going to God, but in fact end up, ah, wrong number. This isn't the true God. So this doctrine matters tremendously. A.W. Tozer says this, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. He says, We tend by a secret law of the soul. It just happens that we move towards whatever our mind conceives God to be. So is it important to know who God is? Well, yes, because if you conceive of him in a way that's false, you will move towards a false God. Many times in the scriptures of whom are called demons. And this is a very, very substantial thing. Here's a, a few reasons that you may jot down or just allow to settle in your head of why it matters that we look at who God is as Trinity. Our worship depends upon who we worship. You could be worshiping a false god, so your worship depends upon who you worship. Your salvation, our salvation, depends upon one true Savior. Your salvation is dependent upon your conception of who God is because God is the Savior. Here's one we've already said. God's at the center of the universe. And if God is at the center of the universe, he's behind it all. The Bible says that it's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. God is everything. I'm not saying he is everything like he's a tree, but he's behind everything. He's in the midst of everything. So much so that we, in him we live and move and have our being. Therefore, all of your life revolves around the question of who is God. You and I as human beings and all human beings on the face of the earth are made in the image of God. So one is if you want to understand the world that God created, you need to know who he is. Two is if you want to know who you are, who I am, who we are as human beings, you have to know God. One of the best ways to understand what humans are like is to study what God is like because human beings were made in the image of God. The last one is this of why this is so important is that we become like what we worship. 
we become like what we worship. So whatever it is you're worshiping, you will become like that. It's a message in and of itself, but those are some points on who cares and why this is so extremely important. So here's what we're going to look at today when it comes to the Trinity. We're going to look at the what of the Trinity, which could also be said the who of the Trinity. So what is the Trinity? I'm just trying to get at that you would understand who the Trinity is. And we say who because God is personal. He's not an abstract concept that you go, he's a what, he's a who. So who is the Trinity? First. Second, we're going to look at the how of the Trinity. How does the Trinity function as God? How does God relate to God? That sounds interesting. Um, that'll be the second one. So the who, the how, and then the so what. What does it mean for us? Fleshing out more of why this matters. So the who of the Trinity. What is the Trinity? Here's where we'll start. The Trinity is what God really and truly is. Trinity, hear that again. Trinity is what God really and truly is. God has existed no other way. In eternity past, triune God, Trinity. Presently, God is Trinity. And in the future, God is and will be Trinity. He has existed in no other way. He does exist in no other way. He will never exist in any other way. The word Trinity was developed, church historians would tell us, by Tertullian, who was an early church father living from about 155 to 220 AD. And what Tertullian did was he was going to the scriptures going, what does the Bible teach about God? And he saw the multiple the multiple aspect of God, the triune nature of God being spoken of, and at the same time, the unity of God. And he came up with this idea of trinity, which means three in one. Okay, that's where the, the word comes from. Here's a definition from the book that Tom mentioned to you, Doctrine by Mark Driscoll. Driscoll's definition of trinity is this. The trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. Let me read that one more time. We're going to flesh this out, okay? The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. Now hear this. Here's what we're about to do in the, the next few minutes is we are going to start by looking at what I would say is like the science of the Trinity. This is the who. What I mean by science is just the facts. That if you were going to understand who God is, you go, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. We understand, that's kind of like the science of it, the nuts and bolts. And then we get into how God interacts. We're going to talk more, you can think about it like the art of the Trinity. How a, a relationship fleshes itself out. So there's a theologian whom I love named John Frame. Theologian just means a guy who's studying God and understanding it, and he's writing about it. His name's John Frame. He's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he proposes that we can summarize the doctrine of the Trinity in these five assertions. Okay, we're getting at the science, the nuts and bolts. These five assertions, here's where we start. God is one. God is one. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy 32, 39. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is like the Old Testament version of John 3.16. So John 3.16 is one of the most famous passages in all the New Testament. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That verse is the most quoted verse. It's the one that's shown it football games. Now, if you imagine a football game in ancient Israel, they would have been holding up Deuteronomy chapter 6, which said this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the reason the Israelites held to that and recite it to this day multiple times a day to fuel their prayer is at the time they were functioning in a world of polytheistic religions, and they were unabashedly boldly monotheistic, which meant they believed there was one God, not many gods. At that day and age, there were sun gods and river gods and you know, sky gods, all these different types of gods. The nation of Israel has encountered the one true God, and they are stating there's one God, which was very evangelistic for them, and it was a statement of who God truly is. He's one. John Frame says this, only one person can be fully in control of the world, speak with ultimate authority, and be the most intimate presence with people. Because there is only one Lord, there can be only one Savior. Salvation is of the Lord. That's a direct quote from Jonah 2.9. Salvation is of the Lord. Then in 1 Timothy, Paul says this. Hear this about God is one. Paul praises God as the King Eternal, immortable, invisible, the only God. God is one. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We believe there's one true God. All the gods of the nations, Isaiah says, are but idols. They're false gods. Okay. Now, two... Here's the second assertion. The first one is that God is one for us to understand God. God is one. Secondly, God is three persons. One God, three persons. Remember the definition of Driscoll. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Another very famous passage in the Bible it's the Great Commission. This is the departing words of Jesus to his disciples who've been following him on earth. And he says this, And Jesus came and said to them, this is after his resurrection. He's now appeared to them. He's about to ascend into heaven. He gives them these parting words. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Now check this out. He's saying, Make little Christ's disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Now, this is very interesting because he says in the name, not in the names. He says it in the singular, not the plural. God is one. Baptizing them in the name. But then he goes on to say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus very intentionally didn't say baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
he added this word, the, in front of them, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to emphasize that there are distinct persons inside this one name, God. One God, three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the commissioning call of Jesus to his disciples. Paul says this, his last words in the letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, his last words, he says this. Now what you're going to see in this, before I read this, is you're going to see how Paul was robustly, that means very much so, Trinitarian. He believed God was. So here's what he says. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So see what he says. The grace of the Lord Jesus, that's the Son. The love of God, that's the Father. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that's the Spirit, be with you all. Okay, so what we've, uh, the first two assertions, God is one. There are three persons in the Godhead. So God is one and God is three persons. Third assertion, number three. The three persons of the Trinity are each fully God. They're each fully God. Driscoll said it like this, who are each fully and equally God. So the Father is the Father God. This is never debated. Everybody believes that the Father's God, but Ephesians 1, chapter 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is God. Now, Jesus is Jesus God. If anybody ever asks you, well, does the Bible really teach that Jesus is God? You can say yes all over, but if you want a go-to passage, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus. He's God. Now the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 5, there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They lie before bringing things to the church. They say, this is all of our possessions, but they held some back for them. Peter then curses them by saying, you have not lied to men, you've lied to God and the Holy Spirit. He equates the Holy Spirit and God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. Therefore saying, who you lied to is God. The Holy Spirit is God. I've given you a passage apiece to show you what the whole Bible teaches about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that each of them are God. So we said God is one. God is three persons. The three persons are each fully God. Now fourth, there's five points. Here's the fourth one. Each of the persons is distinct from the others. Okay? Each of the persons is distinct from the others. So here's what I'm saying. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're distinct persons. These are distinct persons. So what this isn't, this isn't saying there's one God who at different points in history or at different times comes and manifests himself sometimes as the Father. 
at other times as the Son, and then at other times as the Spirit. That's impossible, and it's not what the, the Bible teaches. Here's how we know. Jesus, in John chapter 17, prays to the Father. So is he praying to himself? No. He's praying to the Father. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is being baptized, and the Father speaks from heaven. So was that Jesus, like, taking a big gulp and then moving into heaven and speaking over himself? No. That's the Father speaking over Jesus. The Father and the Son, John chapter 14, says they send the Spirit into the world. You don't send yourself. They sent the Spirit into the world. And then the Bible says that the Spirit bears witness to Jesus. And then we're going to get into this when we start getting into this art of how the Trinity functions. But the three glorify one another. They glorify each other, which shows their distinction. So God is one. God is three persons. The three persons are fully God. Each person is distinct from the others. And lastly, the three persons are related eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, we're going to flesh this out even more. Some historic language about the Trinity is this. Two words, substance and persons. So when we talk about substance, here's what we mean. We're talking about the godness of God. Okay, the godness of God. That's his substance or what he really is. So here's what we're saying. The Father really is God. The Son really is God. The Spirit really is God. Now, when you think about persons, because we said substance and persons, when you think about persons, probably the best way is just to think about human persons, not because God is human persons. The Son became a human being, but the Spirit's not a person. But to think about that, how different persons would interact. The three persons, though, are equal but they take on different jobs. So it's not that the Father's more God than the Son. No, they're equal, but they take on different jobs in different functions in creation and redemption and all the works of God. So the Father, if you want to simply state it and think about their roles, the Father does all things through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Father does all things through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where we're about to get. This is where it gets um, fun. That was the science of it. Things that you have to affirm to be accurate in the Trinity. Now the question is, how does the Trinity function? Like, this is where we start to come into your neighborhood a little bit more. And we understand why this is so significant. So God is one in three distinct persons. But even though the three persons are distinct, you have to understand that these three persons are intimately, I cannot emphasize that word intimately enough, intimately involved with and in one another. More intimately than anything you or I have ever known or could ever conceive. In John chapter 13, starting in verse 31, I'm going to read you two sections, one from John 13, one from John 17, and I just want you to hear how the Father and the Son are relating, and look for this word in, I-N, okay? 
When he had gone out, Jesus said, this is John 13, 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. John 17, this is Jesus praying in the high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, to understand this, how intimate this is, listen to this. I'm going to do this to just pack a punch for a minute, and then we're going to flesh it out. Passages in the Bible that speak about how intimately the Trinity functions together specifically in regards to this word in and the idea of them glorifying one another. So John chapter 10, 38, and in John chapter 14, 10 through 11, it says, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, both the Father and the Son are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in them. Now stop for a minute. I don't I want don't want you to misinterpret this. We're not saying that the Father is the Son, but that he is in the Son. We're not saying that the Son is the Spirit, but that he is in the Spirit. They're distinct but in one another. Let's keep going. John 14:18, when the Spirit comes, Jesus comes with him and in him. When Jesus comes, the Father is in him. This is why Jesus, when he's speaking to Philip, can say to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because he is in the Father and the Father is in him. Now, when you think about how the Trinity functions, it's important to realize this. John Frame says this, and he's absolutely right, that all three persons participate in all the works of God. So all three persons participate in all the works of God. So in creation, there were roles and functions each of them played. And typically, the way it plays itself out is the Father planning, the Son executing, and the Spirit applying. It's the same thing in redemption. The Father's planning, the Son is executing, the Spirit is applying that work. So all three persons participate in all the works of God, creation, revelation, redemption, and judgment. This is the utmost in complementing one another. The Trinity. Here's the next word. The three are constantly glorifying one another. We read that in John chapter 17. This idea of being within one another and glorifying each other, there's this ancient Greek word the church used called perichoresis. And inside that word, perichoresis, is where we get, or this root word, that we get the word choreography. So think with me for a minute about choreography. How does that play itself out? 
Well, if there's a dancer, so Janet Jackson, they say, is an amazing choreographer. She can set up people and get people to dance in harmony with each other that you look at and go, that's unbelievable. Sammy Davis Jr. and tap dancing would set out with other tap dancers and they would have a choreographer set up how they did the dance. Synchronized swimmers have a choreographer that sets up the dance so that you watch the Olympics and you go, that's insane that they can do that all in harmony with one another. Beyonce sets up a dance crew and there's a choreographer saying dance like this so that all these little boys and girls scream at how amazing they dance. That's what choreographers do. And the perichoresis is that inside the Trinity, there is this unbelievable complementing one another, this incredible unity in the midst of diversity so that not only amazing things are accomplished, but before we know any of the works of God through the scriptures, the Trinity has eternally functioned like this within one another, seeking to glorify the other. So how are we as human beings supposed to understand this relationship? Well, we said this is kind of the art of understanding the Trinity. So think about it like marriage just for a minute. If somebody came to you and said, describe for me a good marriage, everybody could kind of go, well, it has to have this, point one, it has to have this, point two, it has to have this, point three, point four. And now if you went to somebody that had a good marriage and you said, are all those things, four things present? Yes. And you would say, okay, so do those four points embody your marriage? They'd look at you and go, you've never been married before. <laughs> like, not only is it much harder than that, but in the sweetest times possible, it's way more beautiful and complex than four points could ever describe. So we said we're going to summarize the Trinity in five assertions, which are absolutely true, just like four points in any good marriage or any good relationship, but these four points could never fully comprehend the beauty that has existed for all of eternity inside the Trinity. There's much more of an art and a beauty to it than that. It's like music, okay? So up here you might have chord sheets, Right here, I'm looking at chord sheets that guys would play. Or you would see music scripted in an orchestra. And yet, if you went up and picked up one of these pieces of paper, you would never pick up this piece of paper and say, this is the music. No, it's not. It's the chords to the music. The music isn't the music until it gets played. And when it's played, you're caught up in a moment that is so beautiful and so glorious that just inside, all you can do is go, wow, that was amazing. So there are truths about the Trinity, but there is a, beautif a beauty to it that when you experience it, allows you to say, wow. C.S. Lewis said it like this, perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions is that in Christianity, God is not a static thing. Not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, a kind of dance. Let me tell you about my first experience dancing. 
okay? My father's been a baseball coach. They were in the Connie Mack World Series, which is an 18 and under World Series in Farmington, New Mexico. The Connie Mack World Series in Farmington is a huge deal in the summers, late in the summer. These teams come from all over the country. The best kind of all-star 18 and under teams show up. So they, they put on a big deal, huge parade. There's floats, and there's these girls that are kind of the queens and the princesses. And then they'll have these little maidens, which are like 11-year-old girls that dress up like the princesses and the queens, and they ride on the floats. And then they attend a big dance, and all the baseball players go to the dance, and all the, the queens and princesses and maidens from the floats that represent each team show up as well. Now, you can imagine 18-year-old boys, a bunch of girls, they're all looking, and you know, hormones are raging. Well, I, at this time, am like nine years old, okay? So the 18-year-old boys think it'd be really funny to get the nine-year-old boy to ask an 11-year-old girl to dance, okay? Because they're all thinking about how they're going to, so go ask her to dance. Oh, I don't want to. I don't even know how to dance. You know, and I don't know all that I'm thinking, but it's essentially the gist is this. Okay, these guys are not going to get off my back, and they'll think I'm really cool if I go ask a girl to dance. So I'm going to go ask this 11-year-old girl to dance. So they're like, go, go, go. So I start walking, and I'm going really slow, like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't even know how to dance. And so somewhat I think this, just follow her lead, right? Just follow her lead. So I'm walking, just follow her lead. Do you want to dance? She says, well, sure, I'd love to dance, right? Well, this girl's 11 years old. She's probably been to like nine of these dances since she was two. She started dancing at three. So she's, she has high expectations, right? And I'm going, follow her lead. So here's what she does. She walks up. It's a slower song. So she puts her hands on my shoulders, right? She's not wrapping her arms around. So she just puts her hands on my shoulders. So I go, follow her lead. So I just put my hands right back on her shoulders. And she's probably too embarrassed and too nice to say anything. So we walk around the dance floor like Frankenstein. Everybody's dying laughing. And I'm like, what? What? Now, contrast that with dancing like the stars. Not when there's a star, but when the two professionals get together. And when they dance across the stage, there's these moments where they are so in harmony with one another, it's like one person moving gracefully across the stage. A woman grabbed me after service and she said, when you started talking about synchronization and dancing, it clicked for me. Because I remember taking dance lessons and what they would always teach you is that you try to make the other person look great. That's your whole job. And they'll say it to both people. Make the other person look great. Make the other person look great. And when it happens and there's graceful skill, all of a sudden you watch it and you go, that's amazing. C.S. Lewis is saying this dance of the Trinity is that it's three persons, not one and not just two, and they are constantly trying to make each other look great. Functioning, knowing their roles, knowing how it harmonizes throughout all of eternity. Tim Keller has been very influenced by C.S. Lewis, and he picks up this idea in his great book called The Reason for God. And Keller makes some points, and he starts off with this point primarily, is that the Trinity means that God in his essence, at the core of who God is, is that God is relational. At his very essence, God is relational. In John chapter 1, verse 18, the gospel writer John describes the Son, Jesus, as living from all of eternity in the bosom 
of the Father, which is an ancient metaphor for love and intimacy. You see all throughout those passages we talked about that they're seeking to glorify each other. It's so amazing because in John 16 and 17, in turn, the Son is spoken of in 17.4 as glorifying the Father. But then in 17.5, the Father is glorifying the Son. This has been going on for all of eternity, it says in John 17, chapter 5. Keller says this, what does the term glorify mean? Now let this sink in because this is where it gets really good. What does the term glorify mean? To glorify something or someone is to praise, enjoy, and delight in them. When something, Keller says, when something is useful, useful to you, you are attracted to it for what it can bring you or what it can do for you. But if it's beautiful, then you enjoy it simply for what it is. Just being in its presence is its own reward. To glorify someone is also to serve or defer to him or her. Instead of sacrificing their interests to make yourself happy, you sacrifice your interests to make them happy. Why do you do that? Why do you sacrifice your interests to make them happy? Because your ultimate joy is to see them enjoy. So when they're saying, I want to the Son's saying, I want to glorify the Father, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's going, I exist to glorify Jesus, and Jesus is going, I exist to glorify the Father, and the Father's giving it back to Jesus, the glory. Why? Because the Trinity knows their joy is found in seeing the others in joy. Now imagine that scene. Three persons constantly moving, choreographed, in roles, seeking the good of the other and the ultimate exaltation and joy and delight of the other, all the while just delighting in being there. Just being present. Not seeking, what can it do for me? But just going, this is amazing to just be here throughout all of eternity. Keller then goes on, what does it mean then that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify one another? He says, well, if we think graphically, like in regards to this stage, for instance, you could say, Keller says, that self-centeredness, selfishness is static and stationary, expecting everything else to revolve around it. He then says, nothing could be further from the truth of the Trinity. The inner life of the triune God is utterly different than that. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually, hear this, self-giving love. 
the inner life of the Trinity, of God, is not characterized by self-centeredness. So even when there's commands in the scripture, glorify God, that isn't intrinsically self-centered because there are three persons seeking the benefit of the others. It isn't self-centered, but it's mutually self-giving love. Greatest example, Jesus giving himself for the glory of the Father and the good of the world. When we delight and serve someone else, Keller says, we enter into dynamic orbit around him or her. We center our interests and desires on the other. This is Philippians 2, right? Have the same mind in you that was also in Christ, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, though he was God, but he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that the Father would be glorified and the world would be saved, Jesus considers the needs of others as more important than our own. Therefore, Paul says, have that mind in you. Be like God. Count the needs of others as more significant than your own. Don't stand statically and expect people to revolve and orbit around you to meet your needs. Be a giver, because that's how you were made. And you're functioning in a world that was made by a God who's a giver. Mutually self-giving love. So in the Trinity, each of the persons is centered on the other. The Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, glorify each other. At the center of the universe, hear that term, at the center of our universe is self-giving love. It is the dynamic currency of the triune life. So if we now ask the so what of the Trinity, what does that mean for us? I would just sit and go, the, the implications are endless to that. First and foremost, I want to repeat what I said at the beginning. God is behind everything. That means you and I are living in a world in this triune God who is a community of mutually self-giving love this God, in him, we live and move and have our being. So the world functions according to God's design of selflessness, of love. Right? One of our favorite passages to quote as Christians is 1 John 4.18. God is love. If God was not three persons, that could not be true. Augustine makes a point that God was not perfect if he's not Trinity. Because he became love, that would have meant he grew, so therefore he could have never been perfect. Making the point that God has forever existed like this. But we live in a world made by this God of love. Therefore, hear me on this. Huge implication. First and foremost, the universe exists and functions rightly when you're living selflessly and focused on others, not focused on yourself. So if in your job, or in your home, or in your neighborhood, or in your family, or in your marriage, or in your extended family, you are being selfish, hear me on this. You are dashing the realities of your joy and delight and utmost success on the rocks of reality. It's being broken on the rocks of reality because the world isn't set up like that, folks. It isn't. 
That's why in our world, when a bunch of people go, oh, but I can sell somebody a mortgage and get something significant out of it, whether it's good or not, it ends up crumbling because it's dashed on the rocks of reality. That doesn't work. Maybe momentarily, not long term, because behind it all is a God who's going, seek the welfare of others. And in its welfare, their welfare, you too will find yours. Secondly, you, human being, are made in the image of this God. So therefore, you will never find delight, never find satisfaction. In fact, you will find the utmost of misery in being selfish and expecting everybody else to orbit around you. But I got to think about my needs, my desires. Okay, stay down that path and it will lead to hell Maybe literally, but certainly today, because you are made in the image of a God who's a giver. That's why Jesus himself can say, it's better to give than it is to receive. Well, how do you know that? Because I made you to know that you will be happier in giving than you will be in receiving. The next thing it means practically is that you cannot live alone. You're made in the image of a God who's relational. And so therefore, you are meant to function in mutual self-giving love with other people within your family, within your marriage, moving off one another, sharing each other, seeking the welfare of other people. It's also why at this church, we encourage you so much to be in community, in redemption communities, our small groups. Because in the midst of this, you may go, but those people are not like me at all. And the Father's going, I know, Jesus is not like me at all. We're different. The Spirit's not like me at all. We're different. But if you want to know what it's like to be like me, function in the context of community. Because there is beauty, God-like beauty in unity and in diversity. In unity and in diversity, there's God-like beauty. The other thing the Trinity does is it makes incredible sense of how as a human being, being made in the image of God, there are times where we hate being alone. It's why solitary confinement is such a horrible punishment. Because humans are made in the image of God, and when they get only by themselves, they just begin to shrivel because they were meant to be around people. But it's also why when you're around people all the time, you're going, man, like Jesus, I just need a retreat. i got to get alone. Right? Is that not true? That's because you're made in the image of a God who both has incredible individuality and diversity, and in the midst of that has unity unlike anything we know. Here's the last thing. The Trinity accomplishes salvation. We said this. The Trinity, the Father plans, the Son executes, the Spirit applies. So if you're in this room today and you're going, my God, I want that to be true about God, that love's at the heart of the universe, that selflessness is at the heart of the universe, and that's God, I want that God. He's saying, come in to me, because that's what the Trinity did. They opened themselves up so that we could be grafted in. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're amazed that you are an incredible community of love. God, my prayer off today is that people would just go a little bit deeper to understand this, but I just pray that in the hearts of people, they, we would be desiring that this be true. Because it's so right, so good. God, we know why our world is so broken because we don't imitate the one we were made like in mutual self-giving love.
God, free us from our selfishness and let us live by like you. Amen.